Welcome to the Embracing You podcast with your host, Eric Pothen. We are all on our own unique journey to discovering ourselves. Each episode, I will help you navigate the journey within to reconnect with and discover the innate love you have for yourself. This podcast will cover topics from self-love to eating disorders and body image to mental health and to overall well-being. My goal is to help you honor and embrace yourself so you may live your most authentic life. Let's dive in. Well, hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the Embracing You podcast. I hope that you all have been doing well and taking care of yourselves. Uh, It's been a pretty busy month for me on my end, but I've also been able to find some moments of rejuvenation, uh, and I definitely find that in this in this space of producing podcast episodes for you all. Today we have a special guest, Jason Wood, and he will be sharing his own story of living with an eating disorder. And here's just a little bit about him. Jason Wood turned his battle with orthorexia into a mission to break the stigma around men's mental health and eating disorders by publishing his memoir, Starving for Survival. Through numerous podcast appearances, speaking engagements, and his writing, Jason strives to start an important conversation that encourages everyone, especially men, to speak up, share their stories, and get the help they deserve. You all, Jason does a wonderful job of sharing his own experience of what it is like to be a man and to struggle with an eating disorder, and so I don't want to take up too much more time here, so without further ado, let's dive in. Well, hello, Jason. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. I'm really looking forward to an awesome conversation today. Uh, Thank you so much for having me on. Absolutely. And thank you for your time and everything that you'll be sharing with listeners today. Um, So to start today's conversation off, if you wouldn't mind just telling us a little bit about yourself, um, maybe what you do for work um, and what led you to do the work that you do today. Yeah, so I was diagnosed with an eating disorder back in 2020. And after receiving the diagnosis, I was mad because I was mad that I had lived so long in the dark, um, not realizing that I myself could even be battling an eating disorder. And a lot of the people around me were praising me for what I had been doing because we live in such a diet culture society. So uh, early on in my recovery, I knew I wanted to get out there and make a difference and change that narrative. So I started a blog, uh, Orthorexia Bites, and began sharing my story through my recovery. And uh, as I started to unpack things, I I could go back into when I was battling the eating disorder. And uh, one thing led to another. I eventually wrote my book, Starving for Survival. And uh, now I spend a lot of time speaking. I do a lot of speaking with uh, college and university students to raise awareness of eating disorders, to raise awareness of mental health in men. And uh, in addition to all of that, I also uh, have the opportunity to work at ANID where I get to lead peer support groups to help people come together and, and heal from an eating disorder. So it's been quite the journey that the last three years have taken me on, but I'm so glad that I'm able to take such a dark period in my life and use that to shine light other people who are going through those same dark times now. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it can be so incredibly powerful when we allow ourselves to enter into that space of owning, honoring and accepting our story and all the good, the bad, the ugly that come with that comes with it. 
and then using that to help others. And I think we're not able to get to that space unless that first part happens of being able to honor and accept. Um, And so, yeah, I just find that really amazing how I feel like that's a common thread amongst a lot of people in this space. um, And those that I've had conversations with is that lived experience is really the guiding light for us and the reason why we do the work that we do. It really is. There's so much power. I like to say that like storytelling is my superpower because uh, it really allows me to break down a lot of walls and a lot of barriers. Uh, It's a real healing process for me and it's a healing process for those around me. Uh, One of the things that I learned early on after I started sharing my story is that when I was vulnerable, the people around me started to become vulnerable. And it was like together, then we could lean on each other. And it was just a two-way street of healing for both of us. 100%. And, you know, once again, I feel like this is a common theme that I've also come to like realize in a lot of these conversations as well is that vulnerability component. How do we connect with others and do the work that we do without being vulnerable ourselves? And I think what distinguishes, you know, a space that looks like this versus another space is that two-way street of vulnerability, right? That you had just mentioned. And so I think when we allow ourselves to be vulnerable, that opens up the doors for others to be vulnerable. When you engage in that conversation and it's that two-way street, that's when the healing happens. Absolutely. And I see it in every single support group that I get to run in every peer interaction that I have is that is when both sides get to heal because you're taking down that barrier. And I think especially for us men, we keep that guard up and it, it stays up. But as soon as vulnerability starts to show through, uh, everybody kind of takes that armor down and, and we get to the real heart of the matter. Uh, reading other people's stories and connecting with other people was so beneficial for me in my own recovery that now it feels like in the work that I'm doing, I get to pay it forward and I get to help other people now by sharing my story. And hopefully I'll inspire them one day to share their story and help the, the next batch of people who need help. Yeah, absolutely. So something that drew me to your page actually was you sharing your own personal story um, of living with an eating disorder. So And that's a a big connecting point for us is that we are both men who have lived experience with an eating disorder. And so I guess I'm curious on your end, what was your experience like being a male and living with your eating disorder? Yeah, yeah. So I guess we probably have to pause right there because there's probably some folks listening who are shocked right now. Men talking about eating disorders, what's happening? So uh, yeah, it is it was one of those things where for the longest time I was sold on the stereotypes. I did not think men could battle eating disorders. Uh, growing up in school, I didn't hear about males having eating disorders. Every case study that we had in health class was around a female, usually a female celebrity on top of that. So. I didn't really think an eating disorder could ever happen to me. And I think that's part of the reason why mine went undiagnosed for so long, because I wasn't looking for it and the people around me weren't looking for it. Because most people kind of have that in their mind, that an eating disorder has this certain look, that it's going to happen to a certain type of person. And a guy who at the time I was diagnosed was 35 does not fit that bill, does not fit that stereotype. So uh, for me, I think being a male and battling an eating disorder, it was like an additional layer uh, or an additional barrier that I was facing when it came to looking for treatment. 
And then especially once I received that diagnosis, I felt like I was all alone. Like I felt like I was a failure at being a guy because guys aren't supposed to talk about emotions. Guys aren't supposed to have these mental health issues. Guys aren't supposed to be concerned about eating and their looks and their appearance. So it was one of those things where it was really difficult. And I think the challenge came about after I received that diagnosis because I had to accept the fact that I'm, I'm not alone, that there are a lot of other people battling, but unfortunately, there's not a lot of guys talking about it. Yeah, I cannot resonate anymore with that isolation component um, where, you know, I never received a formal diagnosis for my eating disorder. Um, and I think a large part of that was just, you know, the whole notion that men can't have eating disorders or eating disorders are solely you know, a, a female oriented mental health disease. Um, and so it's, mm -hmm. it, I could not resonate anymore with that. And I think it's, it's an important part of the puzzle. I think when we talk about men living with eating disorders is you're touching on so many different points too, of like gender stereotypes and gender characteristics and the way those are all playing out of, you know, men needing to have it all together. They can't be vulnerable. They can't, you know, show their emotions, they can't process and sift through them, but rather we need to have that hard shell exterior. And so I think it just makes it that much more complicated when we do enter into that space. And in more particular, you know, you said with your formal diagnosis, well, then how the hell do you manage recovery? How do you manage being in treatment when I feel like one of the biggest tools for myself, and you mentioned this at the beginning as well, but like to have those solid people who have the same lived experience or a similar lived experience, I should really say, that you can connect and be vulnerable with. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and to go to backtrack a little bit to my diagnosis, it was a messy diagnosis. So it was one of those where my doctor diagnosed me at the time with an unspecified eating disorder. And when I asked him what the next steps were, who I should go talk to, he said, oh, I don't know, your situation's unique. So why don't you just go home and Google for, for help? And that's what I had to do at first was, was Google. And when you Google male with unspecified eating disorder, uh, it's very difficult to find the help that you need. So there was definitely that barrier that was going on too. And I think being a male complicated that diagnosis and complicated that transition because when I did search for eating disorder help, I was always seeing these females on all the websites. So again, it made me feel isolated. When I attended my first support group, I was the only guy there. And while it was awesome to be able to connect with other individuals who were going through an eating disorder, I needed so badly at that point in my recovery to connect with other men, to know that I was not alone, to know that it's okay to open up and to talk about my emotions. Uh, because unfortunately, based upon our gender, we, we have different life experiences. So the, the other individuals that were in that support group could not relate to that same level of stigma that I faced around opening up and vulnerability as a male. So uh, it, it made it really, really difficult. And I had to put a lot of homework and research into my recovery. I kind of took an academic approach to find any book I could by any guy about an eating disorder to start scouring the internet and, and find 
other guys who might be talking about this. And uh, it was something that we've talked about previously, but I was able to find some, some guys over in the UK and across the world that I was able to connect with. And that really helped me. Those were big turning points in my own recovery was when I could connect with another male and realize, hey, I'm not alone in this. There's somebody else who, who can understand what I'm going through. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, where I want to guide conversation now is just why do you think that is of that there are, you know, men across the pond over in the UK, like there are more of them than there are more of us here in the US, like in my own research of also trying to find men in this space. You were one of the first that I had stumbled across, but beyond yourself, I can't tell you and I can't count on one hand the number of other male connections I have here in the United States. But when I go over to the UK, there's probably about four or five that I can easily list off that are, you know, big male advocates. I'm just, I'm, I want to guide conversation in that direction of why do you think that is? Right. It's a really interesting question. And it's one that we should we should explore. I don't know if I have a definitive answer on it. But one of my guesses would be that it's just it's children are probably raised there a little bit differently. The boys are raised a little bit differently. Like it's a different culture, a different society, even though there's a lot of similarities between European life and American life. I feel like here in America, we've got this idea of men as being these strong, silent, tough individuals. And I think perhaps the boys and young men are raised with a little bit different of a perspective or example over in Europe and over in the UK. Uh, that would be my best guess because I can, I can look back to second grade, as early as second grade, and identify how boys don't cry and toughen up. And all of that had already started to weave its way into my life. I like to uh, share an example of when I was playing on the playground in second grade, I was stung by a bee. And I kept that sting to myself all afternoon, even though I was in excruciating pain because I didn't want to be the crybaby. I didn't want to be picked on at school for, for showing any emotion or for saying I, I'm hurt and I need help. And it was a situation like that that would play out time and time again throughout my life as I experienced these, these times of pain but I sucked it up. I kept it to myself. I manned up and I followed kind of that narrative that society has, that American culture has around the way that men and boys should behave. Yeah, 100%. And do you, I'm curious as well, did you see any of that play out or some of these expectations of what it means to be a male in today's society did any of that play out when you were going through your eating disorder recovery or did you notice any of that arise? Yeah, no, for the most part, when, when I have opened up and I've, I've talked about it, I have not faced that backlash, that scrutiny, that, that you know, that, that what I'm doing is wrong or I shouldn't be talking about this. If anything, it's usually applauded and uh, other people are saying, hey, I, I wish that I could be as brave as you are and, and talk about these sort of, sort of things. And I always like to tell them that I'm not being brave. I'm just simply sharing my story. I'm not making anything up. I'm just talking about what has happened to me and being real about it. Um, and I've also seen it where I've been able to in encourage and inspire other people, other men to open up and to share their stories. So I think that it's it's been really rewarding for me in recovery to see, hey, 
it's okay to talk about this and nobody's going to take that imaginary man card away from me. Yeah. How do you think we begin to challenge, I guess, should these, you know, gender stereotypes arise where, you know, we have to keep everything in and not out. What's the best way to navigate Mm -hmm. that? I guess if, a male finds themselves in the space of maybe I need to go in to receive a diagnosis or I'm struggling with disordered eating and having those thoughts kind of be in the background, but not fully present. And how do you think we work with those? Yeah, I think one of the big things there is being able, one, to be your own advocate when you're asking for help. And if you're going to that doctor or you're going to a professional and you're feeling that stigma come across or that stereotype come across and you're not getting the treatment that you you deserve, um, find somebody else. I had to do that several times in my own recovery. I had to make a change when it came to a therapist or make a change when it came to a nutritionist because I needed to be with somebody who was going to see me as me and not see me as a stereotype, not see me as a textbook or a case study that was just going to see me as Jason. And uh, I think that was so important. And that removes a lot of those stereotypes right there is if you enter that conversation as a human being, as yourself, remove all the other labels that society places on us, uh, I think that can that can really help uh, create that conversation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. I really like that idea. And I think one of the biggest things about entering into this space of eating disorder recovery is almost like a, a journey to refine yourself. I feel like when you are truly in the depths of living with an eating disorder, so much of your identity is lost and transformed and mutilated and whatnot. But I think I really like that your response right there of, you know, once you get into that space, like trust yourself and know that your needs are important. And if you're not able to get the help that you need, be your own advocate. And what I appreciate about that is like recovery is a very personal and sacred space and it's very individualized. And I think if you can continue to put yourself on the front burner and remind yourself of that, that can help release some of those other exterior barriers. Yeah, it's totally okay to be selfish when it comes to recovery. That is for sure. I had to put myself first and that was hard because I've always been the type of person and I've seen it with a lot of people who battle an eating disorder. We put so many other people before ourselves. So it's so crucial when it comes to recovery and treatment that you put yourself first. And uh, that will really help you uh, in the short term and in the long run. Yeah, 100%. I'd like to rewind a little bit and just learn a little bit more about your story. Um, So you had mentioned that you were first diagnosed in 2020 with your eating disorder, but you had felt that it was maybe there could have been an earlier diagnosis to potentially what was your eating disorder that was diagnosed in 2020. So I guess what was kind of going on in your life around that time? And did it potentially, you know, relate to the onset of your eating disorder? Yeah. So to, to go all the way back to the ancient era of the 1990s, it's, it's fun when I speak to the college students and I talk about the 90s, their eyes light up. They're like, ooh, let's, let's learn about this. We heard about it in the history books. So um, I, I grew up 
overweight and I was picked on a lot for, for my body size. And it made me very self-conscious at a young age. So, uh, when I joined, when I got into high school, I joined Weight Watchers and I wanted to lose the weight. I didn't want to be picked on anymore. I didn't want to be bullied anymore. And that was that first introduction I had to formalized dieting. And I immediately became obsessed with it because I, I had seen that if I lost weight, other people who had been picking on me were now praising me. They were applauding me every time I lost weight. And it made me feel really good as somebody who battled such severe insecurity and anxiety anxieties, uh, it felt really good to, to get this praise. Plus, I have perfectionist tendencies. So I was like, if I'm going to diet, I'm going to be the best dieter there ever was. So already that slippery slope had started in high school. And that's really when that disordered eating kicked into place. Uh, then I would go through several traumatic experiences. I would lose both of my parents at a young age to cancer uh, in my teenage years. I experienced a lot of internalized homophobia. I went through financial hardships and was basically kicked out of my family. Uh, so I went through a lot of rough times, but through all those rough times, I kept turning to this dieting and this exercise as a source of value, as a source of control as I was going through these tough times. Fast forward and uh, at age 29, I had a close call with colorectal cancer. My, the, that was the same disease that my dad had died of. I started to show symptoms, went in, got tested, and I was actually only a couple of weeks away from having polyps turn into cancer. And that scared me at 29 to get that diagnosis. So right then and there, I doubled down on this healthy, clean eating lifestyle I had always dabbled in because I was like, I need to control this situation. My body is out to get me. And I was so fearful that if I just ate one bite of the wrong food, that it would lead to disease and cancer and that I would die at a young age. Mm -hmm. So all of this just kept building on itself into what I call like the perfect storm. It was all these different contributing factors. And in 2020, I think with the onset of the pandemic, at that point, I was also drinking really heavily and my mental health was just in a really tough place. That is when I just went full blown into the eating disorder. And you could really start to see the effects physically, but also mentally. And my personality had started to change. I was socially withdrawn and uh, it just kind of really all came to a head. I, I crashed into rock bottom and uh, was just really sick at that point. And there was really no denying that, that something serious was going on. But unfortunately, up until that point, there really weren't any signs. From the outside looking in, I had kept it to myself. I never let anybody know about the pain I was experiencing. Uh, I didn't have that eating disorder look that people often look for. Um, it wasn't until it got really serious that you could actually, I guess, look at me and tell that there was an eating disorder going on. And I think that's what's really scary too, is because we so often as a society think eating disorders have this look or that they come there, that they happen to a certain subset of people. But the truth is people can be battling them like I was for 15 years and there's no visible signs on the outside. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, first of all, thank you so much for sharing that part of your story. I know once we kind of enter into this space, vulnerability is it's needed. And I just appreciate your vulnerability and just sharing that part of your story. And I think, you know, in hearing that you 
hear a lot of things where, you know, when we think about individuals who live with an eating disorder or have an eating disorder, it's not typically one thing that contributes to the onset. It typically is, like you said, this perfect storm, right, of all of these different life experiences coming all together at once or just little pieces just building and the ice is slowly starting to crack. And then it's that one last ounce of weight that just breaks the ice and then you're kind of fully immersed in the in the eating disorder. Um, so I'm curious to know, you had mentioned that, you know, you had experienced some internal homophobia. I'm curious to know, did or does your sexuality, did that have any role in the development of your eating disorder and what the gay community, you know, praises with regards to body image? Yeah, so that is, that's a great question because the internalized homophobia really did contribute to the eating disorder because it fed on those insecurities that I had faced. I grew up in a conservative religious family and I learned at a young age that being gay was, it was kind of like a bad stereotype. Like if you were gay, that's all you were. That was your identity. That was your personality. And it was wrong. So as I was starting to come to terms with my sexuality in my late teens and early twenties, uh, that was really difficult for me already. I had this low self-worth. So just throw in the fact now that I'm gay and I'm like, wow, I am just a complete failure at everything. I can't do anything right. Like I wanted to change it so bad. I would say all the time, like, I wish I wasn't gay. And I did everything I could to distance myself from the gay community because I didn't want to be that stereotype. So again, I was isolating myself and that was just further worsening this eating disorder. And then as I came out and I started to tell relatives and started to tell friends, I was pretty much isolated from, from my family. There were some relatives that I waited to tell until I was actually engaged to my husband. And when I sent the wedding invites, I never heard from them again. And they were people who were super close to me uh, most of my life. So it was really difficult to see those relationships fall apart. So it was all that pain and that insecurity that I faced with my sexuality, it was definitely contributing uh, to the eating disorder. Now, ironically, or I guess not ironically, but the interesting thing to, to note when it comes to sexuality is that as a gay man, I'm attracted to the same things that trigger me. So if I'm looking at another male and I'm like, ooh, he's attractive because he's got the muscles or the six pack or this or that, I start comparing myself. So again, I feel it, those insecurities come on. So it's like a double-edged sword there because I, I tell people all the time, I'm attracted to my trigger. Like I can't get away from it. So again, it kind of makes me wish I wasn't gay, even though I'm in a, a wonderful marriage and I'm so happy. It, it's definitely something that I still struggle with to this day. And, and I make sure to work with my therapist and my treatment team on. Mm -hmm. Yeah, 100%. And that's something that I think not only yourself and myself struggle with, but I think about a majority of the gay community struggles with when it comes to body image is this comparison game that's going on. And, uh, you know, within the community, it's always like, who has the best body? Who makes the most amount of money? Who owns the nicest house? Who owns the nicest car? A lot of these like external materialistic goods that I feel like drive a lot of people's or determine a lot of people's value and worth within the community. And uh, 
you know, I think we only continue to perpetuate the system, if you will, when we don't do anything about this like body hierarchy that exists within the community where, you know, I very, I'm in the same boat. Like I can't not say that I'm also attracted to men with muscles. Right. But that also I, I jump into my own body and that can lead me to my eating disorder voice to go a little more active. And so it's, there's this statistic where I think it's like of men that struggle with an eating disorder like 42% are gay. And like that, that's like one in two almost, right? If Mm -hmm. we think about that. And so it just, I really want to continue to open the door to have conversations with other gay men in a very body positive, body neutral space and call out the BS that exists within the gay community when it comes to the quote unquote ideal body. Yeah, we have got to put that ideal body thing to, to bed because it is it's hurting so many people. I I will hear from students or individuals who just reach out to me through my Instagram account and say, Hey, how do you navigate this? How do you how do you get through this? I'm a gay male trying to get trying to navigate gay society and gay culture with all of this body pressure and and the hate and just some of the hurtful messages people will receive based upon their bodies. It's just it's so sad when we could be building each other up that we're all tearing each other down and it's that competition. And uh, I think a lot of it though stems from, from that pain and insecurity a lot of us have felt over the years and uh, we take it out, unfortunately, on each other. Mm-hmm. So how do you think we can create a shift in this space within the gay community when it comes to body image and kind of dismantling this hierarchy that exists? Yeah, I think one of the first things we can do is it goes back to storytelling. Like we were talking about earlier, when individuals like yourself and me get out there and we share our stories, it opens other people's eyes and ears to the fact that this this rhetoric, this narrative that we've had around our bodies for so long is really hurtful and can cause a lot of pain. It's not just superficial that we're talking about. It can have devastating consequences. So I think it's important that those of us get out there and kind of share our stories to help reverse that narrative. And then I think the other thing is we have to be able to build supportive communities within the LGBTQ plus community where we can all come together and just rely on each other, whether it's about mental health or not, just a safe place where we can connect with each other in a healthy, safe environment, because a lot of our connection takes place in some very toxic environments where, you know, that body idea, those body ideals are celebrated again and pushed to the forefront. So I think we need to recreate some spaces where it's, whether it's peer support groups or just hangout groups, and we need to be, to be able to promote these better so that we can connect in a healthier manner. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. And I think it's, it's also, I really like that storytelling component and it's also having real and honest conversations, not only with two people who see very similarly, but, you know, I have some people in my life where I have had to set boundaries around what it is that we are doing, whether it's going to the gym or going to pride or anything like that, where I know that having your shirt off is a very common thing, right? And I know now to like set boundaries around 
some of these other spaces and I'm honest with them. You know, I, I can tell them, you know, I'm not feeling or right now my body image is not where I want it to be. I need to set this boundary around not doing this because I know that that's not what is best for me right now. I love that. I love it. There's so much power in boundary setting and it's it's the hardest thing to do sometimes because you worry you're going to hurt somebody else, but you're protecting yourself. Like remind yourself of that at the end of the day. And you, again, like we said a few minutes ago, you got to you got to prioritize yourself and, and take care of yourself. So that's a really good good call to action with those boundaries. I think we can all benefit from from setting those from time to time. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I really think this is, it's going to require a lot of work to create this shift within the gay community. But it gets my mind going to, you know, like, if we're thinking about eating disorders and body image through a male perspective and a female perspective, like, what are we seeing in terms of you know, advertising and marketing when it comes to women. I feel like we are seeing a lot more body diversity in marketing materials when it comes to women, which I think is great. I think that is a really beautiful step in the right direction. But I really don't know if I'm seeing that shift when it comes to marketing and advertising in the space of men. I feel like men are still being portrayed as strong, burly, muscly, but there is not enough body diversity. So, you know, I think, yes, we can talk about this from being a part of the gay community, but also for heterosexual men, there's not much body diversity and marketing as well. So I think we can zoom out and just think about the male experience. And so that's just where my mind starts to go if we're thinking systematic change is how do we get society to zoom out a little bit more now on the male body type? Because I think we're making good progress in the space of more body diversity in the female area. Yeah, that's that's a really good point because it's it's one of those things where again we've we've got to share our stories and say hey as men we also face these challenges around our bodies these insecurities around our bodies because of the messaging that's out there I was hesitant at first when I started my blog and, and sharing my story to even mention the fact that I was gay because I didn't want it to be discounted or say oh well only gay men battle body image issues. It doesn't happen to heterosexual men too, but it does. And I've talked to them. They're out there as well. Uh, there are so many of us that feel this insecurity because of these, the bodies that we're seeing on TV or on the internet. When, when I go on Instagram and type in hashtag men's mental health, at least 50% of them are just guys in the gym shirtless, taking their, they're taking their shirts off, taking a selfie. And it's like, that is not men's mental health. Like if anything, that's hurting my mental health. So it's, it's one of those things where, where we need to be really cognizant of that. I, I think about the Barbie movie and there was some diversity there when it came to female body types. But if you look at the men that were all playing Ken, there was no diversity there. It was one of those things I noted as soon as we walked out of the theater, because I was hesitant about that movie in the first place. But I was like, look at that. Like, once again, it was nothing but these guys with these unrealistically high expectations when it comes to the way my body should look. And um, unfortunately, there's not there's not men out there leading that charge or leading that movement. And it's taken a lot of women and it's taken a lot of years to get to where they're at today. 
And I think we do need to uh, call up other men to, to help lead that change and to help us kind of push forward as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. What have been some of the biggest things that you've learned as you've been in this space of recovery? Yeah, well, on a personal level, I realized just how strong I am um, and how resilient I am. And I think that's one thing that a lot of people out there who might be struggling right now need to hear. Uh, we often don't, I, I wasn't sure if I was sick enough for help and I didn't know if I was strong enough for recovery, but I proved myself wrong with both of those. I was way beyond sick enough for help and I was definitely strong enough for recovery. So that's one thing that I've learned. The second thing that I've learned is that we're all battling something. At some point in our lives, we all face challenges and we all face obstacles whether it's an eating disorder, whether it's the loss of a loved one, whether it's a different type of mental health challenge that you experience, we all have something going on in our lives, but we usually try to pack it away and bury it deep down inside because of that stigma that exists for men and for women when it comes to asking for help or to showing our emotions. And uh, I realized, I think at the end of the day, that we could all benefit from being nicer to each other. It might sound like a very kind of Disney movie like uh, answer, but I think we could all benefit from just being a little bit nicer and a little bit more supportive of each other and recognize that, that we all have something going on. Because in my recovery, I've been able to see it not only in my own life, but also in the people that I've opened up with who have then in, re in return opened up to me. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. This question is kind of in the same vein, but it's a question I like to ask a lot of my guests is, what are you most proud of in, in you know, the work that you're doing now and the work of you being in recovery as well? Yeah. So in recovery, I am proud that I am kicking my eating disorders butt because for so long it held me captive and it beat me down and it stole my identity. So to be able to turn around now, and I'm not saying that there aren't days that I still struggle because there definitely are. I will wake up and have a, a bad body image day or, you know, a meal gets the best of me here and there. But every day I get back up and I, I fight some more and I try to try to kick its butt. It's almost like a competition I have with the eating disorder now. So I'm really proud of, of where I've been able to get there. And then when it comes to, to the work that I'm doing now, I would say it's creating these safe, welcoming, comforting spaces for men to have these types of conversations. I always approach every, whether it's a podcast, whether it's a speaking event, whether it's just an interaction I have with somebody on Instagram and say, am I being that person that I needed when I was at my sickest? And that is exactly what I've been able to do in the last three years since I've started sharing my story. And I think that's the thing that I'm the most proud of is to be able to, to be that person and create that space that I so needed uh, back in 2020. Mm, yeah, I love that. And I think, you know, that's one of the things that stands out most about your work is that I can tell your heart is in the right space. And I can tell your heart genuinely wants to be a support and to help others on whatever journey they're facing, whether it be through mental health or whether it be through an eating disorder. Um, that just runs so deeply, I think, in, in your work that you do. So I want to thank you for that. Um, I feel like this is the perfect transition to this question as we're kind of wrapping up our time here together. But, um, you know, if you could say anything to 
any man out there who may be struggling with an eating disorder or disordered eating or body image or mental health, what would you say to them? I would say you are not alone and you are worthy of help. No matter if you have a, a diagnosis or not, like we were talking about earlier on, it doesn't matter if you are battling something, whether it's eating concerns, body concerns, or another mental health issue, talk to somebody because it's going to help you. It might be the scariest thing you ever do, but I guarantee you, uh, you'll come out on the other end stronger and, and in the process of healing. Mm, yeah, that's great. Um, so the title of this podcast is Embracing You. So how has your own journey of living with an eating disorder and your road to recovery allowed you to embrace yourself? Yeah. So I, when I started, when I was diagnosed, I had zero self-compassion that did not even exist on my radar. I was just very negative and down on myself. But in recovery and in the work that I'm doing now, I have learned to not only accept myself, but oftentimes I'm, I'm finally able to love myself and to show myself that compassion that I didn't give myself for so many years. Um, I recognize the challenges that I've overcome. I've recognized the situations I've had to face. Um, I've been able to forgive myself for times where I messed up or I fell short. And I've been able to, to take failure as an opportunity to grow and as an opportunity to learn. And I think through all of that, I've just developed a much better understanding of who I am. And I've been able to love and accept that person for who he is. I don't ever feel like now I have to fit into somebody else's expectations for me. You know, I think you so beautifully, you know, reflected on right there too, of, you know, this journey of being in recovery really is such a beautiful opportunity for us to rediscover ourselves. Because like you had mentioned earlier too, when you're living with an eating disorder, you quite literally transform into a different person, both exterior for some people and mostly interior, right? Where you just, your mind starts to create all of these very distorted thoughts in the way that you think and and whatnot. And when you're, when you enter into that space of recovery, like you had said, it's kind of like the shield drops down. There's that moment of vulnerability. And with that vulnerability, you're able to do a lot of that re-self discovery. And what a beautiful gift it is for yourself and that you're able to give yourself through being in recovery is just to be in a body that, you know, you love and you are reconnecting with, you know, your true identity, like that just sounds incredibly empowering what your experience is. So I just want to thank you for your reflection on that. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, well, thank you for giving me the opportunity to share some of that reflection and for this amazing podcast where we get to hear other people share their reflections as well. It's, it's super cool to be able to join you. Absolutely. So if people are interested in learning more about you, the work that you do, if they would like to connect with you on social media or learn more about your book, um, where can they find you? Yeah, so I'm at orthorexiabites.com uh, and you can find me on Instagram also at orthorexiabites or you can just search my name, Jason Wood. I think I'll pop up that way too. 
Uh, I might have mentioned it during the conversation, but my messages are always open. So if anybody ever needs to contact me, send me an email through my website or message me on Instagram. I am always here to to talk and, and to help you through whatever is going on. So um, information about my book, Starving for Survival, can be found on the website as well. And uh, yeah, that's probably the best place people can find me. Awesome. Well, Jason, thank you so much for all of your time and all that you were able to share today. Um, Once again, I am very appreciative of all of your vulnerability and for you sharing your story so freely with uh, our audience today. So once again, thank you so much. And um, I can't wait to connect again sometime soon. All right. I'm looking forward to it. Take care. Once again, I would like to give a big thank you to Jason for his vulnerability in coming on to the Embracing You podcast to share his story with us all today. I just wanted to quickly update you on where you can find Jason. Um, he did a little bit of rebranding with, with his work that he does via social media, and his new Instagram handle is at mentalstormwarning. And I will make sure that this is reflected in the show notes. So if you are interested in finding Jason, that is where you can find him. So until next time, I hope that you all continue to take care of yourselves. You remind yourselves that you are more than your body. And most importantly, you give yourself love and compassion each and every day because you're worth it. Much love.